This evening we're going to read from the book of Matthew, and from Matthew chapter 2, so please do open it with me, Matthew chapter 2 this evening, and we're going to begin to read at Matthew chapter 2 and verse 13. <clears throat> so Matthew chapter 2 and verse 13, if you're lifting a pew Bible this evening, it's found on page 966, it's page 966, and we're going to go from Matthew chapter 2 verse 13 through to 23 this evening. And this is God's word to us, and we know that we can trust it fully because it is his living word. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After her had died, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up. He took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So that was fulfilled, so that so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. Thank you, John. Uh, those of you who are Star Wars aficionados uh, will know every sequence in that great story, <clears throat> and you'll remember how the Empire strikes back. Uh, you know the story of Luke and Han Solo and Princess Leia and Chewbacca, attacked by the Imperial forces on the ice planet of Hoth, and Luke eventually has to escape and seek Yoda's help to survive in that ultimate duel between good and evil, light and darkness, with Darth Vader. And there's a sense in which the, the Star Wars theme is like a, a cosmic uh, narrative that runs all the way through human history in this great struggle between light and darkness, uh, truth and error, uh, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. <clears throat> and the, the conflict uh, comes to the surface very clearly at key moments in the history of redemption. No, no time more evident than around what we normally know as the Christmas story. And there is a very dark side to that Christmas story that we've been thinking about in recent days. Uh, I think we're in danger sometimes of sanitizing the story of the birth of Jesus. Uh, we want to give it a nice, warm, cozy, fuzzy, feel-good story, 
about a beautiful baby snuggling down with his mother in a lovely stable surrounded by cuddly sheep and friendly shepherds and cows with large brown eyes. And it's true that there, there's real joy and real delight in the Christmas story. It is about a glorious vision of angels singing their heavenly melodies. It's about the shepherds running with great joy to tell the good news of the Savior's birth. But there's a darker, grittier side to the Christmas story because the empire strikes back. The hardship and the suffering that Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus had to experience was more than just finding it hard to get a space one night in Bethlehem to sleep where the baby would be born. But it's a very painful, harsh, and dark story of hatred and murder and suffering and people running for their lives. And that whole story about the empire striking back and the dark side of the Christmas story is right here in the second half of Matthew chapter 2. Because it tells us that Jesus was born into a world that really isn't all that much different from the world we live in today. A world where innocent children were slaughtered. Where families had to become refugees in order to survive seeking a refuge and a homeland. So there's a modern ring to the Christmas story that fits well with the stories that come up regularly in our newspapers and our news bulletins about murders and abuse and refugees. But in spite of the dangers and the threats, God's plan and God's Messiah are preserved. And it's an encouragement to us that even though we live in a very dark, corrupt and murderous world, God has a plan that will not be thwarted or overthrown. So three very brief points arising from our passage this evening. And the first is this, don't be surprised when God's plan is opposed by the wicked and the powerful. King Herod was a very powerful but a very wicked man. He was known as Herod the Great, a title which he probably gave himself since his brutal regime didn't inspire love among the people. He was king of the Jews, but not a Jewish king. He was an Edomite installed as king over the Jews by the imperial power of Rome. He was a puppet king, a client king, and as long as he did Rome's bidding, he was able to retain a certain amount of power in that region. And that power included the ability to put to death anyone who threatened his claim to the throne that he held. And he used that power ruthlessly. Herod had three of his own sons executed, lest they usurp his throne. And more than that, he issued an awful decree that upon his death, one member of every family in Judea should be killed. That way, he reasoned, the people would truly mourn whenever he died. And so Herod was entirely capable 
of responding to the threat of a new king, a king whose birth was borne witness to by the stars. And on hearing the account given by the Magi, the wise men, his response was brutal and merciless. The act of killing all the children in Bethlehem who were two years old or younger. He was not going to tolerate any claim to his throne. He was going to eradicate and eliminate anyone who would threaten his power. Uh, they reckon that Bethlehem, <coughs> in the years of Jesus' birth and infancy, had a population of just around 1,000 people. But that means that there may have been perhaps 20 infant boys of the age that Herod targeted. And this massacre, the massacre of the innocent children, has inspired a great number of paintings, say, the most famous being two uh, very similar paintings by Rubens. Uh, we have one here, this uh, painting entitled The Massacre of the Innocents, uh, I believe was sold a few years ago for close to 50 million pounds. It really is a magnificent piece of artwork. And news of these kind of massacres that happened even in Herod's day are not unknown to us in our day. Maybe some of you will remember a few years ago around Christmas time, the Taliban went into a Pakistani army school and shot the children there for no reason. We have ongoing stories of shootings at schools in the United States particularly. We hear constantly stories of bombs and terrorist activities which result in the death of innocent people, many of them children and young people. It's not a new phenomenon. It's been part of this dark and tragic and broken world for many centuries. But before that massacre was inflicted on Bethlehem's boys, you know what happened. Joseph was warned by God in a dream and he manages to escape into Egypt. And, and Matthew, in his account here, he takes the opportunity to quote from the prophecy of Hosea, where Hosea says, out of Egypt, I called my son. Of course, uh, to the intelligent Jewish readers of Matthew's gospel, uh, the reference to Egypt would be very clear. Can you remember? Of course you can, because you heard about it this morning. Another story in the Old Testament where baby boys were killed. Can you remember a story where there was a deliberate attempt by the person in position of power to eliminate a whole generation of young boys? And you remember at the time of Moses, there was Pharaoh who was on the rampage killing little boys, lest his position of power come under threat. And Moses, you remember, was preserved in that little basket, the basket that the princess found floating among the bulrushes by the side of the river. And Matthew, as he quotes that about Egypt, clearly intends his readers to make the connection. Because Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is the new deliverer. He is the one who will lead his people out of their slavery to sin 
in spite of the determination and in spite of the murderous campaign of an evil and a powerful king. Out of Egypt, I call my son. And in that passage in Hosea, which Matthew quotes from, the whole nation of Israel is referred to as God's son. So there's a sense in which Jesus repeats and recapitulates the experience of the whole nation. He goes down into Egypt. And he returns again from Egypt, symbolizing and reliving Israel's bondage in Egypt. And that's why Matthew includes a second Old Testament quotation, this time from the prophecy of Jeremiah. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Uh, the situation that Jeremiah is referring to is that the Babylonians are invading Jerusalem. Not only is the city being destroyed, but again, innocent children are being slaughtered in that invasion. And in his poetic vision, Jeremiah imagines that Rachel, the wife of Jacob, the mother of Joseph and Benjamin, is weeping for her descendants, weeping for her children. Rachel is the ancestral representative of all those mothers in the land who wept for their little children. But that lamentation comes in the middle of four chapters in Jeremiah, chapters 30 to 33, that are actually filled with consolation and comfort and joy. Those chapters look beyond the grief of death to the dawn of a new age, a new age that Messiah will bring. And when Messiah comes, says Jeremiah, he'll prepare the way for everlasting peace and righteousness out of the chaos, out of the violence, out of the death at the hands of wicked rulers. There would come a new covenant, says Jeremiah, a covenant that would bring forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit and eternal life. And notice again, by quoting from Jeremiah, Matthew's helping us to make this connection that the lamentation of the mothers in Jeremiah's day finds its fulfillment in the weeping of the mothers in Bethlehem in the days of Jesus. But he's also reminding them that the weeping that they were experiencing as mothers over their children being taken away and slaughtered was simply a preface to the coming of Messiah, to the coming of the Deliverer who would bring peace and joy and eternal life. But the massacre of the innocents is a reminder of how evil men can be so uh, violent in their quest for power and in their rejection of God. That the darkness of violence, the darkness of murder, seeks to snuff out the life and the light of Christ. So we shouldn't be surprised, friends, if we see wicked and evil men taking action today to destroy Christ and his followers. It's happening in many regions of our world where our brothers and sisters in Christ face persecution, where they face imprisonment and even death because they belong to Christ. You'll forgive me saying this, this is my opinion, 
but I think it happens in our own land as powerful men uphold evil and corrupt practices that also destroy the lives of men and women and boys and girls. For me, there's something very dark and satanic about the practice of abortion, where innocent children and babies are massacred in their thousands every year. The new law that the Republic of Ireland will be considering over these next few weeks and months is one where right up to the point of birth, children may have their lives taken from them. But there's no outrage. There's no condemnation from the liberal establishment. Rather, they seek to extend the evil, to extend the darkness. And anybody who's been involved in pastoral ministry will have talked to women who decades after an abortion continue to weep, continue to lament for their children. There's something dark and satanic about powerful men in government who attack family life by insisting on redefining marriage in a totally corrupt and sinful way. There's a clear and unrestrained evil in the way in which children in our own community are abused and exploited by powerful and wicked men for the sake of their own sinful sexual gratification. Folks, we ought not to be unclear about this, that there is a dark and there's an evil side to life in our world at the end of 2018. Just as there was when Christ was born, <clears throat> we shouldn't be surprised at that, that when the light shines in the darkness, the dark empire always strikes back, trying to extinguish the light of truth and of love and of peace, the message of Christ. So we shouldn't be surprised. The second point is this. In spite of the darkness, in spite of the massacre of the innocents, be reassured that God's plan will not be defeated. That's really the point about these Old Testament quotations in the end of Matthew chapter 2. Every detail of the life of Christ, according to Matthew, is a fulfillment of prophetic revelation, a fulfillment of the plan that God had prepared from before the foundation of the world. Remember this, prophecy is only possible if God is in control of history. Otherwise, Prophecy would merely be human guesswork. It wouldn't always be accurate. It wouldn't always come to pass. But even back in the days of Moses and the children of Israel in Egypt, God was working out his plan that would lead to the coming of Christ and that would lead eventually to Bethlehem. And during the days of Jeremiah and during the captivity in Babylon, God had Christ in mind. And Matthew's thinking about all this as he writes his gospel. And what God had in mind for Christ is that he would deliver his people from bondage by becoming their Passover lamb. He planned that Christ would bring in a new covenant that would change everything by the power of the Spirit. So these Old Testament citations at the birth and the infancy of Christ point us in the direction that the gospel will go. They remind us that God will not let anything interrupt his program in Christ to save and deliver his people. So the holy child was preserved 
in safety, in spite of Herod's best attempts to kill him. God was not going to let his great eternal plan of redemption be thrown off track by one evil Middle Eastern despot. And God used both his angels and willing, obedient men like Joseph to ensure that the Redeemer was preserved. How thankful we should be that Jesus is the one who can deliver people from the bondage of sin and death and bring them into a new covenant that will last forever. The Lord didn't simply step in to judge the world. Rather, he came to bring salvation, to provide the way of escape. By his death on the cross, he fulfilled the old covenant and he inaugurated the new covenant. By the work of the Holy Spirit through this new covenant, God is working in and through us to bring about a holy people who will champion righteousness, who will stand up for truth and for love and for peace in this world. So in addition to our thanksgiving to God for sending his son, there should also be a deep commitment in all our hearts to promote the plan of God in Christ. Just as Joseph was obedient to make sure that God's program would succeed. So you and I should be ready and eager to do all that God calls us to do. By siding with Christ, even though the opposition may be strong and powerful, we're actually putting ourselves on the right side of history. We're being told in the media <clears throat> and from all kinds of alternative voices that Christians by maintaining their standards, are on the wrong side of history. But because we know where history is going, we know that we're on the right side. Because today, nobody remembers Herod. Nobody remembers his son, Archelaus. Their evil regimes, their evil empires have long since disappeared. And in the future, nobody will celebrate the members of a government that wants to extend abortion or redefine marriage, they will pass away. They will be forgotten. There's only one kingdom that's going to endure. There's only one kingdom that's going to last. It's the kingdom of light and of truth and of grace. The Bible says the day will come when all the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So as Christians, we're on the right side of history. And that's where we stay, siding with Christ, identifying with the light, even when the empire strikes back. If you're here this evening and you're not yet a Christian believer, then my word to you is you need to get on the right side. God has a great plan, an eternal plan that includes the salvation, the deliverance of all who trust and believe in Jesus. And if you side with Christ, then you begin to share in that salvation and deliverance. But if you say no to Christ, then the Bible says your future judgment, your future condemnation is certain. Here's my third and final point. I think it arises clearly from this passage. Remember this, that God accomplishes his plan in unlikely ways. 
That's really the point, I think, of the final paragraph that John read for us there, right at the end of Matthew 2. Joseph and Mary and the young child Jesus end up in Nazareth in Galilee. It's an unremarkable and an unlikely place. Little village, way up in the hills, away from the main roads, remote, obscure, tiny Nazareth, meaningless in most folks' opinion of Galilee. And their opinion of Galilee generally wasn't very high. This was the region of the Gentiles. This was a despised place. Nazareth was a nothing town in a whole region that was looked on with contempt. Yet Matthew says that Jesus, being raised in Nazareth, fulfilled what was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, here's the problem. You look high and low in the Bible, and you won't find a verse that says that. But what Matthew has apparently done is relate the word Nazareth to a well-known prophecy, well-known in the original Hebrew language, from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot out of the stock of Jesse and a branch out of his roots. The picture Isaiah has is the kingdom of Israel is like a tree. And at the captivity, when Israel was carried off by her enemies, God cut down the tree, but he left a stump. And that stump in Isaiah 6 is said to be a remnant of true believers. And out of that stump, out of that remnant, a little shoot would grow, a tender branch. And that branch, out of the stock of Jesse, would become King Messiah. So the image of the tender branch is one of humility, one of lowly beginnings, one of inauspicious origins. And the fact that Jesse is mentioned and not David really confirms this, for it stresses very much the non-royal beginning of this family. Eventually, that family, that little branch, would become the king of kings and the lord of lords. But his beginnings would be humble. His beginnings would be considered worthless by many, even despised by many. And the connection is that the Hebrew word for branch in Isaiah 11 verse 1 is the word natser. It sounds a bit like the name Nazareth. So Matthew immediately saw the connection. Isaiah's prophecy about the branch, Nazar, meant that he would have a humble and an inauspicious beginning. And when the family settled up in Nazareth, in Galilee, they settled in this humble, out-of-the-way village called Nazareth. To Matthew, the very word of that prophecy found its full meaning and therefore its fulfillment in Jesus, the Nazarene. In his early days, Jesus would be a man from a town not worth mentioning. A man away from the highways of life, seeing nothing of the great movements of kings and armies and caravans of people. He would be a Nazarene. And if you read the rest of Isaiah chapter 11, this lowly Nazarene, was to become a great king. 
empowered by the Spirit of God, judging the world in righteousness, transforming all of creation into a peaceful, harmonious world. And I think that's the lesson for us tonight, that people often forget how God works. He doesn't choose the way the world chooses. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks in the heart. God doesn't choose the big, strong son of Jesse. But he chooses the boy who's out in the fields looking after the sheep, the boy that everybody else has forgotten about. Imagine having a family gathering and David doesn't even get invited. He's left out. And God doesn't choose that his son will be born among the powerful in the courts of the king. He chooses to place his son in an out-of-the-way small town that nobody has ever heard of. And this lowly Nazarene would actually turn the world upside down. At his coming in glory, this exalted Nazarene will judge the world in righteousness and the people with his truth. He'll create a new heaven and a new earth. So right now, we live in a world that's dominated, that's controlled by the rich and the prominent and the well-to-do people. But God doesn't often use them to accomplish his purposes. His method is always to take weak people, foolish people, people with no great personal qualifications, and to use them to accomplish his purposes. And the wonderful truth is this. He can use people like you and me. He can use ordinary folk like us. Our calling is simply to be faithful and resolute in our commitment to Christ and to his kingdom. But God can use you in spite of the opposition of wicked and powerful men and women. He delights to use insignificant people, people from insignificant and inauspicious backgrounds, so that ultimately all the glory goes to him. Think of everything that Jesus came for. He came preaching the good news to the poor, to the powerless. He came healing the blind and the deaf and the lame. He came welcoming sinners and children. He came challenging the system that insisted on ritual purity, and instead he insisted on love and compassion. He came eating dinner with anyone and everyone. He came saying not, blessed are the fortunate, or blessed are the elite, or blessed are the rich, but blessed are the poor. Blessed are the merciful. They shall obtain mercy. And folks, that's still the way that Christ's kingdom advances. It's by love and forgiveness. It's by quietly reaching out in mercy and grace to those whom others have marginalized. The rich and the powerful and the influential may think they can destroy Christ. They think they may overthrow his kingdom by force and by influence, by using their power and their muscle. The empire strikes back and thinks it can eliminate all that is right 
and good. But it doesn't work. And the Bible says it never will. It's through ordinary people, in ordinary places, that the kingdom of Christ advances so that all the glory goes to God. Father, we give you thanks for this passage from your word, passage that reminds us that in the midst of the darkness, the light still shines, and the darkness will never, ever be able to overcome it. And Lord, we gladly side with Christ tonight, and we renew our commitment to walk in fellowship with him as we enter upon a new year. Whatever the challenges that may lie before us, however strong the opposition may be, we take refuge in our great Lord because we know, Lord, that you are in control and your purposes hold fast and you are a faithful God. Encourage us, Lord, to know that wherever you have placed us, we are enabled to live for you and to shine out into the darkness of this world. Lord, enable us so to do by the power of your Holy Spirit. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.